Okay. We, can we just rewind the clock like two minutes and just start over? <clears throat> if you have your Bible, please take it and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, we are continuing in our study in this book. Uh, as you're turning there, isn't it appropriate? Didn't you love our worship time this morning with our young people and with Jared and his team? Yeah. It was a joy for me to slip in last night uh, for the night of worship and kind of sit in the back and watch as uh, they led in worship and as they had testimonies of how um, Crosswalk Ministries, our, our youth ministries, has impacted lives uh, over the years. And I found myself thinking back through several decades now of uh, that ministry and the life impact that has happened, and it's just been such a, a joyous, joyous thing. I also, um, as a secondary thing, note that Gracie is back with us. Grace was here last Sunday uh, sharing with us her Eagle Scout project of raising, uh, of collecting items for the drop-in, a homeless kind of crisis youth shelter downtown. And, and Gracie, you said last week your goal was, I think, a 1,000 items. How, and I know you collected some yesterday. Where are you at today? Congrats. Uh, there's a box in the foyer if you were uh, wanting to participate in giving. There was clothing items or hygiene items or snacks as a, as a way of supporting her work with the shelter downtown. That's great. When we ended last Sunday in chapter 29, the final verse of that chapter uh, in 29.11 says this. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. If you remember the story, David and his uh, fighting force has been occupying the town of Ziklag, uh, a Philistine territory. David fled to the enemy side as Saul and the armies of Israel were pursuing him. He went to the enemy to find refuge from Saul. And for 16 months, he has enjoyed peace as Saul dared not pursue him. But as we come to this chapter now, the armies of the Philistines, the five Philistine cities have gathered, and they are about to make war on Israel and Saul. And David was conscripted in, and we saw the drama of like, "Uh uh-oh, David, what are you going to do now? You're either going to be caught as a a traitor to your own people, or you're going to have to turn on your benefactor and fight with Israel against their age-old enemy, the Philistines. And we saw last week, that God did this amazing rescue as only God could do. And the Philistine leader said, we don't want him and his men with us. Send them home. And so David, at the end of chapter 29, is returning home. And what we find is that now we return to this story of what's going to happen. And the events of chapter 30 
are going to parallel, they're going to be simultaneous in time with the events of chapter 31. So we're going to see David and his men in the chapter today. What did they encounter as they returned home while simultaneously the armies of the Philistines will rally in chapter 31 against Saul and the armies of Israel. And what we find is that as these men are now excluded from the battle, they return home 50 miles from Afek back to Ziklag. That'll take them a couple of days journey to get there. And as they return home, they're going to find that their real battle was going to happen back at home and not with the Philistine armies on the front of war with Israel. Because little did David and his men know that these days they have journeyed with the Philistine army have been the very days that the armies of the Amalekites have gone to Ziklag and found all the men away. And they're going to take captive all of their wives, all of their children, all of their possessions, and they're going to burn their houses to the ground. As we come to this passage, we are going to see in chapter 30 how David is going to be tested. How is a king made? I want to argue that David's preparation for the office of king is all over chapter 30, yet not in the ways that one would typically expect. Because the things that will happen here are going to test David and are going to reveal evidence that he truly is Israel's next king. While David's leadership rises and shines, Saul's is going to plummet and Saul's life come to an end. I want to share with you a quote on the screen. This comes from uh, a commentary, Mastering the Old Testament, Dr. Kenneth Chafin, and he writes this, while it might seem appropriate to turn from the preparation, it might seem inappropriate to turn from the preparations for a great battle to cover the activities of a soldier who was not planning to participate in the battle, it fits perfectly into the historian's purpose the author of this book, which is to show the hand of God, to show how the hand of God continued to be everything David did and how each event prepared him to ascend the throne. This is a clue that what we're about to study is all about the making of a king. And our passage is going to begin here. I've given you some notes to follow along if you would like to. And we're going to start here on this first point that uh, victory, victory is followed by calamity. Chapter 30, look with me in your Bibles at verses 1 and 2. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one 
but carried them off and went their way. The Amalekites have raided Ziklag, David's hometown. And in a sense, we can understand from our perspective that this was in every way an act of vengeance. For David had been raiding the Amalekite villages in the south for the last year and a half. It was from Ziklag that David had ventured into those communities in the south. And among those were the Amalekites. But unlike David and his raiders, the Amalekites took all the people alive with them. They burned the homes, but they took all the possessions of value, all the money and clothing, all the livestock and food, and all the women and children. Notice with me verses 3 and following. It says, And when David and his men came to the city... They found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Can you imagine the scene? These guys have now, over the last five to seven days, journeyed on foot 50 miles from Ziklag to Afek, probably 20 or 30 miles a day on foot, got to the battle scene, got, got omitted from battle, got sent back. Now they're marching that same 50 miles back, 20 to 30 miles a day, 100 miles journey, and they're going to arrive home finally, and all they find is smoke and ashes. They don't know who has done it, and they don't know what has happened to everything that they valued. And so the narrator says that those brazen warrior men wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever been there? Has the grief ever hit you so hard until you cried, until you couldn't cry anymore? This was a dark day. And the narrator is going to make it clear that David was no exception to the pain. In verse 5, it says, David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of uh, Nabal. It's a dark and bleak day. David had fled to this Philistine territory 16 months earlier. Why? For refuge, for safety. And what did he find this day? All is lost. And they don't know anything about them. I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to highlight the principle that we're looking at. David's day of victory, being released from that impossible catch-22 of being on the battlefield only to go home and find calamity. That is, church, often how it occurs in life. Listen to me. On the heels of great victory, often comes sudden calamity. I don't know why God allows it to be so, but I know that God has 
appointed our lives to operate in this way. Right as you find yourself on the pinnacle of the mountain, you often will find yourselves almost immediately in the valley of the shadow of death. Calamity often comes on the heels of great victory. In um, 1994, my wife and I left a, uh, our first ministry, a five-year uh, pastoral stint in Idaho at our, our first church. It was a joy to spend those five years there serving with Don and Sue Mogford. Uh, Don was the lead pastor at that time, and I was his youth pastor. We loved those years in Idaho. But that church was small, and resources were scarce, and I was contacted by this church um, about whether I would be interested in coming and working as the youth pastor here, and this church, there were some things that drew us here. They were a little better off and able to offer a more livable wage, which was appealing as we had two small children. I also had a desire to pursue grad school, and there weren't any options in Idaho, but in coming to Bethany, I was allowed to, for several years, take classes up at Multnomah Seminary in Portland and continue my education. And so we were thrilled at the opportunity to come here. We conducted our final summer of ministry with the students and families at the church in Idaho with a huge mission trip to San Diego and weeks at camp and special outreach programs. And one of the highlights was the national uh, GRBC conference was in Seattle that summer. And I was going to be leading worship for the youth conference, which that year had 500 students and leaders gather for that youth conference. And they had never before allowed a youth pastor to do that, to lead worship. And I wanted to guard that trust carefully. And, but as we were coming to that moment, the reality was that my wife had had a super difficult winter she was 25 years old in every way, the picture of health, and yet she had this nagging pneumonia that kept coming back on her, and over and over again, she would get pneumonia. She was hospitalized a couple times, and they would give her medication to fight that off, and it would go away, and only shortly thereafter, it would come back again and again, and we were getting ready to leave for Seattle, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor said to her, Marcy, you're fine. Take your medication. You're going to be okay. And so we drove to Seattle, and she was in misery. And when my mom and dad met us in Seattle to pick up our two littles and take them to spend the week with Grandma and Grandpa, I ended up putting my wife in my dad's car and said, we're not sure, we, the doctor just said this, but will you take her to the hospital and let them look at her? And over the next week, it was calls from, she's in the hospital and we're doing tests and she's fine too. She's not doing fine, you need to get here. And I was running back and forth from Seattle to Bremerton to be by her side. And finally, and you had to realize this was 1994, the doctors one day said, we're running tests for AIDS to see if that's what's going on. And all of a sudden, I started to think, maybe she's not okay. Maybe she's not going to survive. And we waited for the test to come back. They said, no, it's not that. I thank the Lord for that ER doc who said, I'm going to figure this thing out. 
And two weeks later, a result came, diagnosed her with a very rare immune system malfunction that left her completely unable to fight off anything. And there was hope for a future. But after two weeks in the hospital in, in Washington and thousands upon thousands and thousands of dollars in hospital bills, and then we were told that the the therapy for her for the rest of her life would be a very costly serum that she would have to be given by infusion monthly, and the cost of that prescribed serum equaled three times my monthly salary. We just sold our home in Idaho, and I remember my wife weeping and saying, we'll never own a home again. All is lost. And we'll never get health insurance because those were the days of pre-existing conditions. And moving from one place to another meant the insurance company could tell you no. Why does God allow calamity so often to fall on the heels of victory? I, I know that they are tools in his hand. By the way, my wife's still alive. All was not lost, right? We, we have a house again, and her medication still costs three times what I earn in a month, but thank God for health insurance. Amen? But that was a hard pathway that we had to walk through. The story of David and these people is a reminder to us. I wish I could tell you that it would be different in your life, but the simple truth is that God often allows calamity to come on the heels of great victory. And Christian, we ought to note this today so that we are not taken by surprise when it happens to us. And that we would find great comfort in God's promises to us. I noted in your notes, God's promise through Nahum the prophet, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Amen? Next time you're on the pinnacle of a great victory, steal yourself for the possibility that calamity may be right around the corner. And know this, that God is in heaven and he will walk with you in it. This is what David and his men needed to know on this day. What, by the way, do the soldiers do as they approach their home and find it burnt and all their wives and possessions gone? Well, sadly, verse 6 tells us that it doesn't look good for David. Verse 6 says this, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David, who had been the hero, David, who had rescued them again and again, David, who had led well this day, they said, David, you need to die because we have lost it all. These men were bitterly wounded. 
They were tired from a week's travel, a hundred miles on foot, and their reaction was visceral, as if to say, David, you brought us here for safety, and now our wives and children and homes have been destroyed, and David, you will pay. But I want you to note what the end of verse 6 says, because it also tells us what David did when all that venom came his way. Verse 6, the last sentence, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I want you to write that down. David found his strength in God. David had faced threats many times before. There was nothing new in this challenge. For most of the last decade of his life, David had been running and fleeing and hiding and and living under constant threat. And those threats had come from Saul, the king of Israel, whom he sought to serve. And, And when those threats were going on, we read earlier in our study in chapter 23 that Saul's son came to David to encourage him after his father Saul had been threatening David. And in chapter 23, verse 16, we read, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. It's almost the same phrase that we see here in chapter 30 and verse 6. In other words, what Jonathan had done for David in chapter 23, David now does for himself in chapter 30. David strengthened himself in God. He turned to God for strength. And I I want to say this again. Listen to me, Christian. It is absolutely essential to your spiritual life that you learn to do the same. When life is hard, when calamity falls, when the arrows of the enemy are coming at you, you must find your strength in God. You must learn to fight back against those lies that the enemy is going to put in your mind the, 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 the whispers that says God has abandoned you, that you're certain to fail, that doom is the only outcome possible for you. You must fight back and you must find your strength in God. I put in your notes David's own testimony from Psalm chapter 27 when David said to the Lord, don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. What did David do when he was faced by the accusation of stoning from his own men? He strengthened himself in God. He knew better than to believe the lies that were coming his way. And he knew where to go when he needed help and guidance. And he drew near to God at this moment. That is much like what the author of Hebrews tells us. Again, I put this in your notes. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as the story continues, we're going to find in verse 7 that David, after strengthening himself in God, is going to call for the priest to come and to bring the prescribed method of inquiring of God. Notice with me 
verses 7 and 8, it says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. David consults the ephod. The ephod referred to the ornamental vest that the high priest would wear. And with that ephod were included what we know as the Urim and the Thummim. There were these two stones. They were sacred lots that could be cast. And those lots were prescribed by God to reveal yes or no answers to significant questions for the people of God through their priest. And yet we read in our passage that David did not simply get a yes or a no answer, but he got a detailed description of what to do and what would happen. And Abiathar the priest was there to oversee this. Remember that Saul had killed 80 priests at Nob earlier in the story. Abiathar was fortunate to escape that day, but his father, Ahimelech, not so. Abiathar, in every way, is certainly the only living priest at this time there to speak for God and to guide God's people. And with this fresh commission from the Lord, David and his men are now going to pursue the raiders who had sacked their homes. Verse 9 says, So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. I want to remind you again that that the fact that a third of his army is exhausted should not be a surprise. A a week of marching, a hundred miles on foot, now probably five to six more miles from Ziklag to this brook. They're exhausted physically. They have spent their reserves, and now they bear the burden of great fear and anxiety having lost their families, their wives and kids, not knowing whether they're dead or alive, seeing their homes burned. And these individuals, as they came to this brook, there was a third of that battle-ready force that simply looked at their companions and said, I I can't go anymore. I'm, I'm spent. I'm done. I want to ask this question. How tired do you have to be to abandon the search for your own family? Can you imagine? Max Lucado, in his book on the life of David, makes this observation concerning tired followers of the Lord. 
He says, the church has a quorum of folks who've grown weary to keep searching. Good people, godly people, only hours or years ago they marched with deep resolve, but now fatigue consumes them. They're exhausted, so beat up and worn down that they can't summon the strength to save their own flesh and blood. Old age has sucked their oxygen Or maybe it was a deflating string of defeats. Divorce can leave you at the brook. Addiction can as well. Whatever the reason, the church has its share of people who just need to sit and rest. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt so beat down and so tired that it's like, I just can't go anymore. There's more to be done, but I can't do it. I've got to let someone else step up. I, I find this story so fascinating. And back to the story to ask the question, what does David do? when a third of his army says we can't go. And what we know from the story is David allows the 200 to remain and he took 400 others with him and they continued the pursuit. That leads us to this third point. Write this down. That David acts in obedience to God's revealed will to him. And we find this In verses 11 through 15, it says, as David and the 400 continued, it says, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where, do, where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. This servant had gotten so sick that his master just left him behind in the desert to die. And David and his men found this individual. Verse 14 The servant continues, we made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against uh, that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And all those soldiers in David's eyes widened at this moment. Verse 15, and David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me to the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. God gives David and his men a clue, a foreigner who will help them know where to go. And what we're going to find in the story is it doesn't take them long to, to catch up and find the Amalekites who had taken their families and burned their houses. And let's, let's look at it in verse 16. Verse 16 says, And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
These guys are out in the middle of the desert, far, far away from anyone or anything, and they had won this great victory and captured all these people who probably were going to be sold off into slavery and all these livestock and all this wealth and all this food, and they have just spread themselves out across the desert to celebrate. Woohoo! And David and his men find them reveling and partying in no way recognizing what is about to happen. Verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. It was only the young men who were quick enough and agile enough. By the way, you know how hard it is to mount a camel? (laughs) Of course it was only the young men, because us old guys aren't going to make it. And the young guys hopped up on those beasts and high-tailed it out of town to save their skin. Everyone else was killed in battle that night. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. Verse 20, David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, saying, this is David's spoil. All was saved, and only 400 escaped. Listen to me, church. Good things happen when we obey God. This is an age-old principle of life. Moses told the Israelites over and over as they journeyed through the desert those 40 years in the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses, and that covenant was simply this. Listen to me, people. If you do what is right, good things will happen. But if you do what is wrong, bad things will happen. That promise continues to this day. The New Testament says it this this way. What you sow, you will also reap. All of this good resulted from David's choice to seek the Lord, to call the priest, to bring the ephod, to cast the lots, to ask God, God, what do I do? When God told him, David said, yes, sir. And off they went in obedience to the Lord. David proved true yet again the principle that Jeremiah the prophet would say in Jeremiah chapter 29 when God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's what David did. He sought the Lord And that promise is still true today. God is always a prayer away. Listen to me, Christian, when you get off track, one pivot of repentance turns our face away from sin and self and back to God. And when we do that, God will hear us and God will respond to our cries of help and he will meet us in that moment of great need. I put in your notes... Another promise from Jeremiah, it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So 
You shall be my people and I will be your God. Obedience, obedience leads to blessing. And what we find in verse 20 is that David is given a special provision. It says, David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. The very people who wanted to stone him the day before on this day are giving him a double blessing of the bounty of that battle. David received an extra measure of the spoil of the victories of their war. He led them in obedience to God and his reward was great. By the way, a a normal reading of this passage would cause a common sense reader to think this is the high point of the story in chapter 30. They defeated the Amalekites. They found all their possessions and all their families intact. This is the pinnacle of the story. This is where the exclamation point goes. But I want to suggest something different. I don't think that this grand victory on this day is the high point of the story. I think the high point is what happens next when they return to the tired ones who were left at the brook. Look with me at verse 21. It says, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And then David came near the people and he greeted them. This is not given us in the story, but I have to think this happened. And I want you to imagine with me right now that scene of great victory when David and his men come in and rescue their families and they, they strike down all the Amalekites who had done this horrible thing to them. And there's this joyous reunion as soldiers are running around and, and across the Mayhem they spot their son and they run to that boy and they fall on their knees and they grip him and hold him when they find their wives in the crowd and she comes rushing and she throws her arms around his neck and weeps and kisses him and says, thank you, thank you for saving us, thank you for getting us out of this. And as I picture that scene, I want you to picture the fact that one-third of those women and children, as they're looking around, they can't find their man. Where is he? And I can picture one of those wives grabbing one of the soldiers who's been reunited with his family and saying, my husband is Shimelay. Do you know where Shimelay is? And that soldier looking at her and saying, Shimelay? Uh, yeah, I know where he is. He stayed back at camp. And that wife saying, he did what? He, he's back by the brook, Besor, soaking his feet. He was tired. He had to, he had to revive himself. He was just kind of worn out. He wasn't able to join us this day in the battle. Max Lucado writes this humorous anecdote. 
He says, I don't know if Hebrew women had rolling pins, but if they did, they might begin slapping them at this moment. Be sore, huh? I'll tell you who will be sore. (laughs) In reality, there is a divide in the camp on this day between those who fought and won and between those who stayed behind because they were tired. And I think resentment had to grow. And I think that wives had to be angry. And what about the band back at the brook Besor? I have to think that worms have higher self-esteem. How does David respond to this divide in his troops? And I think this is the high point because David does something absolutely amazing. I see this in verses 23 and following. Actually, let me back it up to verse 22. It says, and all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men. By the way, you remember what David's band of soldiers was made up of? (laughs) These were not, not, you know, uh, uh, military academy graduates. These guys were rough and tumble. These were outcasts. These These were outlaws looking for a cause to join It says, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. That's how the soldiers responded. We won the victory. We get the spoils. You stayed behind and rested. Take your families and go. In verse 23 David's response, it says, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and has given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. Now, I want to tell you, I think this is interesting because when we read this account, was there anything mentioned about these guys who stayed at the brook taking on a responsibility for the army of protecting the equipment and the gear and the baggage? And the answer is no. They just said, we're tired. We can't go. But as David comes this day, he looked at those guys who obviously in the convenience of the moment, well, I guess if they're going to stay here, I can leave some things here. I don't have to carry everything with me out to fight. And David ascribes to them and he says, listen, the share for those who went down to the battle will be the same as those who stayed with the baggage. They shall share alike. Unbelievable wisdom employed this day. This day, David acts like a king. Good leaders know how to diffuse tensions among their armies. Good leaders know how to promote unity. 
Good leaders show compassion for others. And as I watch David in action, I'm convinced that this act became the greatest contribution to his ascending to the throne and uniting the armies of Israel again. I think David proved himself on this day. David, like the parable of the talents, when the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with things. And I think David is proving himself faithful. Listen to me. Kings aren't made just by coronation ceremonies. Kings are made when they earn that title through strategic leadership decisions in the field. And verse 25 makes it clear for us. It says, after David said, those who fought and those who stayed behind were all going to share alike. And verse 25 says, and he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from this day forward, from that day forward to this day. This became an everlasting policy in the nation of Israel. Those who fight on the front and those who stay behind and support them in the back, all will share the victory. And all will be entitled to a share of the spoils. This is phenomenal strategic leadership exercised on that day. Our chapter ends with another insight into David's becoming king, however, because it shows how David used that extra, uh, extra generous gift that was given to him as the leader. He used that in a very strategic way. Notice with me the last paragraph beginning at verse 26. It says, when, Zab- when David came to Ziklag, he sent a part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of Kenites, in the cities of Hormah, in Borashon, in Athak, and in Hebron. That long list of cities. David divided up the spoils and he sent them to his brothers in Judah, all the places that he had wandered with his soldiers. Those same, those same citizens who are going to, at this very moment, are embroiled in a battle they're going to lose against the Philistines, and he sent them gifts. And that last city mentioned, Hebron, is going to become the seat of David's throne for the first seven years of his monarchy. David employed strategic leadership. I want you to write this down. The principle is this, that he even shares God's goodness with outsiders. David used what God had given them to bless equally those who were on the battlefront and who were support. And then he used it to bless other citizens outside of that battle. At the beginning of things made. And is David's emergence as a king in this chapter, is that typical? Is that how? Or was that simply David's pathway never to be repeated by another king? And the answer to that question is 
by another. And I want you to consider those five in light of another king. Number one, his day of victory is followed by a calamity. A son of David, a coming king, will be celebrated a hero in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday where the people will gather and shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And only a few days later will be accused by the same people, arrested, tortured, and crucified. His day of great victory followed by calamity. Number two, he finds his strength in God. He would pray much this coming king. He would commit himself to God's plan even though it meant a painful pathway. Number three, he acts in obedience to God. Jesus would pray in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He acts in obedience to God. Number four, he shares God's goodness with all involved. Jesus would win a victory over the devil rising from the grave three days after his crucifixion, sharing his victory over sin with all those who followed him, even those whose walks were wayward, like doubting Thomas. And finally, he shares God's goodness even with outsiders. Jesus would offer salvation to all mankind, even saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. All five steps of that pathway by application Jesus walked for you and me the question is is he your king have you ever embraced him are you following him do you trust him we pray with me Lord God, it's such a humbling story to think that the pathway that David followed was replicated in so many ways by the Lord Jesus. But Lord, I thank you that even though Jesus had a day of calamity following his great victory, he was obedient to you, he found strength in you, and when he had won his victory, he shared it with us all. I I pray, Lord, this morning for anyone here who has not yet put their faith in you, who has not yet started a relationship with you that is based on faith that says to you, Lord, I believe. And Lord, I thank you that the decision to believe in you must be accompanied by repentance. We have to turn away from sin. We have to recognize that we do things wrong. And I just pray this morning that you would be with any who are here who need this day to make Jesus their king. As everyone's head is bowed and eyes are closed, if you would like to put your faith in God and turn away from sin, you can do it right from the chair you're sitting in in a moment of quiet prayer in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. God will hear your heart. If you want to do that, you can pray with me even now this morning. Say to him, God in heaven, I want you to be my king. And so, Lord, I confess this morning that I have wandered from you. I'm a sinful person done the wrong things over and over again. And Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me for my sin and I want to turn from it. I want to live differently. I want to do better, but I need your help. So Lord, will you come into my life? Will you help me? Lord, I do believe that you are real, that you are God. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again, even as Lily testified this morning in her baptism. I believe that too.
And I'm asking you, Lord, to come into my life and change me from this day on. So, Lord, will you do that for me? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. I want to say one more thing before I'm done. You may be here this morning knowing exactly what it is to be too tired. You have fought the fight, but you're out of energy. And you're too ashamed to complain about it as you watch other people claim victories in their walks with the Lord. And so you sit weary in silence beside the brook Besor. And if that description fits you, I want you to know something. And I want you to hear me. It's okay to rest. Jesus is your David. He fights when you can't. He goes where you can't. He's not angry at you. In fact, he invites you to rest in him. The brook Besor is also a caution, Christian, against arrogance. Remember that victory is a gift, and if you're tired and you need to catch your breath, do so. And if you're strong, stop passing judgment on those who are tired because chances are you'll be tired one day soon and you'll need to be reminded that the Brook Besor is a great story to know when you're weary. Amen? Will you stand and sing with us one more time?